How many of you recognize that clerical gentleman standing next to Albert Einstein? Raise your hand if you know who that is. Okay, okay, a few people do. Uh, but I will tell you who he is later. But that is symptomatic. The fact that he is so little known is symptomatic of the problem that I'm going to talk about tonight. There's a widespread perception that there's some kind of conflict uh, or contradiction between science and religion. Atheists confidently assert that there is, or some atheists do, and many religious people fear that there might be. This has helped to undermine the faith of many. Now certainly some religious beliefs do conflict with science, but why is there a perception that all religion, religion per se, is contrary to science. I think people are mistaking one thing for another. There's a real, long-standing, and often bitter conflict going on, but it is not between religion and science. It's between religion and a philosophy called scientific materialism. Scientific materialism is an idea that grew up alongside of science, was inspired by science, and often and wraps itself in the mantle of science. Uh, it is the worldview of many scientists and of some people who presume to speak for science, but it has no claim to being science. It is, rather, a philosophical idea. The central tenet of scientific materialism is that the ultimate reality uh, is matter, so that everything that exists and everything that happens can be explained by the laws of physics and blind chance. For some of its adherents, however, scientific materialism is more than this. It's a passionately held ideology that sees science as having a saving mission, which is to free the human mind from irrationality and superstition, among which they count religion. It is not enough that science, be good, that science is good and brings us understanding. There must be an enemy to be vanquished, and religion is cast in that role. This explains the strange zeal that some materialists have, and I'm thinking of people like Richard Dawkins or the late uh, uh, Victor St uh, Stanger. There's the, the strange zeal that some materialists have in propagating their ideas. They feel that they're taking part in a grand struggle between reason and its enemies. This gives their lives a heroic meaning and purpose. Scientific materialists have a well-developed critique of religion, which has at least three aspects, historic, philosophical, historical, and scientific. Their philosophical claim is that there is an inherent contradiction between the scientific and religious outlooks. Science is based on reason and evidence, whereas religion, they say, is irrational because it is based on dogma, faith, and mystery, which involve belief in things that cannot be seen and for which supposedly there is no evidence. Science is based on natural explanations and natural laws, whereas religion is based on miracles and the supernatural. They see, they see religion as a matter of myth and magic, and therefore pure superstition, which is the very antithesis of a rational scientific outlook. 
Their historical claim is that religious believers and institutions have been hostile to science and have tried to suppress it. This is powerfully symbolized in the, in the eyes of many by the Catholic Church's treatment of Galileo. And this impression is constantly reinforced in the public mind by the battles waged against evolution by biblical literalists. Their scientific claim is that the actual discoveries of modern science over the last 400 years have debunked or undermined fundamental Christian beliefs about the universe and mankind's place in it. As the story is often told, science has dealt one blow after another to the religious conception of the world. Copernicus showed that man is not the center of the at the center of the universe. Newton showed that the world is governed by blind and impersonal forces. Modern astronomy showed how small and insignificant we are compared to the cosmos as a whole. Darwin, they say, showed that humans differ only in degree uh, from lower animals. Discoveries in fields such as neuroscience and artificial intelligence are expected to show, if they haven't already, that the supposed soul is just the working of the brain, a complex biological computer. And modern uh, cosmology is invoked to show either that the universe had no beginning or that the universe created itself out of nothing by a quantum fluctuation. I'll deal with each of these three strands in turn. First, the philosophical. The philosophical critique is largely based on crude misunderstandings of traditional ideas about God and creation. Let's start with supernaturalism. Christianity and Judaism were never based on supernaturalism, if we mean by that the rejection of the idea of a natural order. Indeed, scholars say that the book of Genesis was in part a polemic against pagan supernaturalism and superstition. When Genesis said that the sun and moon were merely lamps placed by God in the heavens to light the day and night, it was countering the paganism that worshiped the sun and moon. When it said that man was made in the image of God and was to exercise dominion over the animals, Genesis was, among other things, countering the paganism in which men worshiped and bowed down to animals or to gods made in the image of animals. In paganism, the world was imbued with occult forces and populated by numerous deities, gods of the earth and ocean, goddesses of sex and fertility, and so forth. But Jews and Christians taught that there is only one God who was to be sought not within nature, not within its phenomena and forces, but outside of nature, a God who was indeed the author of nature. In this way, biblical religion uh, desacralized and depersonalized the physical universe and made it indeed into a natural world and thus helped to clear the ground for the later emergence of science. The biblical religions then taught that there is a natural order which comes from God. What characterizes this natural order and reflects the rationality of its creator is precisely that it is orderly, harmonious, and lawful. Consider this passage from the famous letter of Clement to the Corinthians, 
written about 97 AD, see if it's up here, who is traditionally listed as the fourth pope. The heavens, as they revolve beneath his government, do so in quiet submission to him. The day and night run the course he has laid down for them. Sun, moon, and starry choirs roll on in harmony at his command, none swerving from his appointed orbit. Laws of the same kind sustain the fathomless depth deeps and the, of the abyss and the untold regions of the netherworld. The impassable ocean and all the worlds that lie beyond it are themselves ruled by the like ordinances of the Lord. Upon all of these, the great architect and Lord of the universe has enjoined peace and harmony. Well, consider this passage from the Christian apologist Minucius Felix, writing around 200 AD. If upon entering some home you saw that everything there was well tended, neat, and decorative, you would believe that some master was in charge of it and that he was himself much superior to those good things. So too, in the home of this world, when you see providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth, believe that there is a Lord and author of the universe, more beautiful than the stars themselves and the various parts of the whole world. So it was not, so it was not the supernatural or miraculous departures from the order of nature, but the order of nature itself and its lawfulness that were seen as pointing to its creator. The ancient argument was that if there is a law, there must be a lawgiver. God was the lawgiver not only to Israel, but to the cosmos itself. God says in Jeremiah chapter 33, when I have no covenant with day and night and have given no laws to heaven and earth, then too will I reject the descendants of Jacob and of my servant David. Psalm 148 tells of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the heavens obeying a divinely given law that will not pass away. The idea of God as rational lawgiver very likely helped give birth to modern science, as even some atheists at times concede. For example, the eminent biologist E.O. Wilson suggested the following as the reason that Chinese civilization, for all its impressive achievements in science and technology, did not produce a Newton or Descartes. Quote, Chinese scholars had abandoned the idea of a supreme being with personal and creative properties. No rational author of nature uh, existed in their universe. Consequently, the objects they meticulously described did not follow universal principles. In the absence of a compelling need for, for the notion of general laws, thoughts in the mind of God, so to speak, little or no search was made for them." Unquote. And the well-known cosmologist Andre Linde, an atheist, has suggested that the notion of a universe governed by, quote, a single law in all its parts is historically rooted in monotheism. Christianity does, of course, teach that there are supernatural realities, such as divine grace, that have effects in the world. But the word supernatural 
which means above the natural, would make no sense unless there were a natural order in the first place. And the concept of miracles, which are extraordinary events that go beyond what is naturally possible, presupposes that there is a natural order that determines what is naturally possible and what is not. There's no logical contradiction between the idea of miracles and the idea of a lawful universe, for the same lawgiver who established the laws of nature can also suspend them. There's much confusion today, even among some Christian believers, about how nature relates to God. Instead of seeing God as the author of nature, they see God and nature as somehow opposed or in competition. So that if something has a natural explanation, then God has nothing to do with it. And conversely, if God is the cause of something, it must be supernatural. Many therefore look for, the ev for evidence of God only in what is outside the course of nature or inexplicable by science. That is, in the gaps in our scientific understanding. Hence the expression, the God of the gaps. And atheists think that by closing those gaps, they will leave no place for God to hide. The traditional Christian and Jewish view was quite different. If God, as creator of the natural world, established its laws and gave things their natural powers, then his existence is evident in nature itself and its ordinary processes, whose power and working reflect God's own power and wisdom. This is the message of the following passage from the Book of Wisdom a Jewish work of about 100 BC, which is recognized as part of the Bible by, Catholic, by the Catholic and Orthodox churches. For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. But they suppose that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. If through delight in the beauty of these things, people assumed them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord for the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at their power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Notice that the evidence of God to which this passage points consists of phenomena that are perfectly natural. Fire, wind, swift air, the circle of the stars, turbulent water, and luminaries of heaven, that is stars, planets, sun, and moon. Medieval theologians distinguish two ways in which God acts in the world. He can act directly in a supernatural manner, for example, turning water into wine, or he can accomplish his will through the operation of natural causes and processes. It has always been the Christian view that God ordinarily acts in the latter way. In the words of the 17th century Catholic theologian Suarez, Quote, God does not interfere directly with the natural order where secondary causes suffice to produce the intended effect. 
I'll explain the term secondary causes in a moment. Here it may be read as natural causes. So he's saying God does not interfere directly with the natural order where natural causes suffice to produce the intended effect. This principle was important for the founding of science, for it implied that when confronted by some puzzling event or a new phenomenon, we should, we should look first for natural explanations. Superstitious people tend to see the supernatural in every unusual or strange event. But this was strongly criticized by the great medieval scientist theologian, Nicole Orem. In explaining the marvels of nature, he said, quote, there is no reason to take recourse to the heavens or to demons or to our glorious God as if he would produce these effects directly any more than he directly produces those effects whose natural causes we believe are well known to us, unquote. Another great medieval scientist theologian, Jean Buridan, said that when confronted by new phenomena, we should seek, quote, appropriate natural causes, unquote. That's why the Catholic Church, for example, does not declare a miracle to be worthy of belief until it has excluded the likelihood of natural explanations. This brings us to the all-important theological distinction between primary and secondary causality. I think the failure to grasp this distinction is one of the main reasons that people see a conflict between science and religion. This distinction can be explained using a simple analogy. Consider the play Hamlet. In that play, the character Hamlet kills Polonius by stabbing him through a curtain. Now consider the following question. Did Polonius die because Hamlet stabbed him? Or did he die because Shakespeare wrote the play that way? Let's have a vote. How many people think that Polonius died because uh, Hamlet stabbed him? How many people think that Polonius died because ha uh, Shakespeare wrote the play that way? Don't be afraid to vote twice. This is Chicago. <laughs> this is Chicago. In fact, you should vote twice because obviously they are both causes of Polonius dying. It's a silly question that I asked. They're both causes but at different levels. The character Hamlet is the cause within the play of Polonius' death, the horizontal cause or what theologians traditionally termed the secondary cause, whereas Shakespeare is the vertical or primary cause of the whole play and its entire plot, including, of course, Polonius' death. There's no competition or conflict between these two levels of causality. By analogy, the natural causes within the universe, which are studied by scientists and other people, are horizontal or secondary causes, while well, God, as the author of nature, is the vertical or primary cause. The analogy makes clear just how silly it is to treat evolution and creation as alternatives, as both fundamentalists and atheists do. Did this species of animal arise by natural processes or because God wrote nature's script that way? Of course, both. This is why the Catholic Church has never condemned, never condemned, or opposed biological evolution. This also makes clear why scientific materialists are wrong to think that believers in God do so without evidence. 
For materialists, evidence means either directly observing something with our senses or inferring that something exists as a natural cause of what we observe. The way we observe a compass needle move and infer that there's a magnetic field. Well, obviously, God cannot be seen in either of these ways, for he is neither a part of nature, which could be sensed, nor a natural cause. And yet God is a cause, the ultimate cause. He's not a cause within nature, but the cause of nature. Thus, nature gives evidence of God in the same way a play or novel gives evidence of its author, even if the author does not make an appearance within the book. Now let's turn to the materialist historical critique of religion. The idea that Christianity, and the Catholic Church in particular, opposed science and tried to hold it back is called by historians the conflict thesis. It has been completely discredited by historians of science. It's a myth, pure and simple whose roots lie in the Enlightenment and the contempt many of its thinkers had for revealed religion. Its growth was aided in Catholic countries by anti-clericalism and in Protestant countries by anti-Catholic prejudice. The conflict thesis was popularized by two enormously influential books written in the late 19th century. The History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion by John William Draper and a History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom by Andrew Dixon White, the first president of Cornell University. These books are dismissed by scholars today as full of errors of fact and interpretation and historically worthless. One eminent historian of science calls Draper's book, quote, a thinly disguised anti-Catholic rant. The scientific revolution which took place in the 17th century and gave rise to modern science did not occur in opposition to revealed religion. In fact, most of its great figures were devout Christians. Copernicus, whose work sparked the scientific revolution, was an official of the Catholic Church. Johannes Kepler, famous for his three laws of planetary motion, was a devout Lutheran who announced the discovery of one of these laws with the words, I thank thee, Lord God, our creator, that thou hast allowed me to see the beauty in thy work of creation. Galileo remained a devout Catholic throughout his life. Descartes, whose work in mathematics was foundational for modern science, believed in God and the reality of the spiritual soul. Blaise Pascal was not only a mathematician and physicist of genius, but a man whose life was transformed by an intense mystical experience and who wrote in defense of Christian belief and against radical skepticism. Robert Boyle, the first modern chemist, left a large sum of money to endow a series of lectures whose purpose was to combat the ideas of, quote, notorious infidels, which meant in those days atheists. And Isaac Newton, the greatest of them all, spent as much time on theological and scriptural studies as he did on science. All of them saw their work as showing the beauty of God's creation rather than as supporting atheism. And this was true long beyond the 17th century. The two greatest physicists of the 19th century, Michael Faraday and James Clark Maxwell, were exceptionally devout Christians even by the standards of their day. <clears throat> Moreover, the scientific revolution did not spring out of thin air. 
Its foundations were laid in the, in the universities of medieval Europe, as has been strongly emphasized by the eminent historian of science, Edward Grant. It was in those universities that for the first time in human history, science was studied and taught on a continuous basis from generation to generation by a stable community of scholars. That is where science was first institutionalized, as Grant put it. These universities produced hundreds of thousands, there were about 100 universities in Europe at the end of the Middle Ages. They produced hundreds of thousands of graduates who were introduced to scientific questions and from whose ranks scientific talent could emerge. The scientific community and the scientific public, these universities created were the soil in which the seeds of the scientific revolution germinated. Because the Catholic Church specifically is often accused of having been anti-science due to its treatment of Galileo, I'd like to focus for a few minutes on the Catholic Church's record with regard to science. A little known fact that dramatically illustrates the positive role the Catholic Church has played in the development of science is the large number of Catholic priests who made major discoveries or contributions to science. We Catholics have our litanies. What follows is not a litany of saints, though there are a couple of saints among them, but a litany of priest scientists. For reasons of time, I'm, I can only mention a few of the most outstanding, and I'm going to skip the Middle Ages for the same reason, even though there are a number of very interesting uh, medieval priest scientists. So let me skip the Middle Ages. And that. So starting with the 17th century, the century of the scientific revolution, there were many important priest scientists, including Neil Stenson, Marin Mersenne, Christoph Scheiner, Gian Battista Riccioli, Francesco Grimaldi, Benedetto Castelli, and Bonaventura Cavalieri. Stenson, also known as Steno, was Danish by birth. He converted as an adult to Catholicism, became a priest, and eventually uh, was made a bishop. As bishop, he was noted for his asceticism and solicitude for the poor. He was beatified in 1981, I think, by Pope John Paul II. So he's blessed Nicholas Steno. Or Steno. Stenson was the greatest anatomist of his time, and he made major discoveries in that field, especially about the glandular lymphatic system. Several features of the body are named after him, such as Stenson's duct, Stenson's vein, and Stenson's foramina. But his greatest contribution, for which he is considered a founder of the science of geology, was developing, for the first time, the correct theory of the origin of sedimentary rocks, indeed understanding for the first time that these rocks were originally underwater and formed from sedimentation, and the origin of fossils. His theories unlocked the history of the Earth. He's considered one of the principal founders of the science of geology. This slide, by the way, I think it was on his uh, birthday or something, Google celebrated him with one of these Google doodles, and if you can see from that distance, there are strata with little fossils embedded in them, celebrating this great priest scientist. Mersenne is considered the founder of acoustics. Make sure that's Mersenne, yes. For fundamental discoveries in the theory of sound and vibrations, his religious house became a meeting place of famous scientists. And his voluminous correspondence with other scientists 
was an important means by which scientists learned of each other's work. The Dictionary of Scientific Biography calls him one of the architects of the European scientific community. Shiner, Riccioli, and Grimaldi were Jesuits, and the Jesuits have a great tradition, especially in astronomical research, which continues to this day. The very calendar we use was developed by a Jesuit astronomer, Christoph Clavius, in the 1500s. Christopher, Christopher, uh, Christoph Shiner uh, was one of the discoverers of sunspots and made the most detailed study of them. Here's a slide showing Shiner making observations of the sun. And on the next slide, I show a diagram uh, from his treatise on sunspots, which shows a sunspot observed on consecutive days moving across the face of the sun. There's a gap for one day, which was due to the fact that it was a cloudy day and he couldn't observe. Um, John Battista Riccioli developed and calibrated pendulum clocks and perfected them as instruments for the precise measurement of time for scientific purposes. And he used them to make the first precise measurement of the acceleration of gravity and to study falling bodies. He wrote a technical astronomical encyclopedia which became a standard reference work for astronomers for over a century. Together with Grimaldi, he made an accurate map of the moon's surface and developed the nomenclature now still used to describe features of the lunar landscape. Grimaldi, the same Francesco Grimaldi, discovered the extremely important physics phenomenon of diffraction of light. How many physicists are, are in the audience? I hope there's some. I, I was flabbergasted. I only learned a few years ago. Diffraction was discovered not by Fresnel, not by Young. We're always in the textbooks told about these great scientists in around the year 1800 who worked on diffraction, but it was discovered in the 1600s by this Jesuit priest, Francesco Grimaldi. In fact, he's the one that named the phenomenon diffraction. This fundamental discovery shows that light is a wave, and since we now know that all matter is made up of waves, diffraction is a very important phenomenon in all branches of physics. I show some examples of diffraction phenomena on the right. Note that the colorful bands of light you see on DVDs and CDs are caused by diffraction. So whenever you see those, I want you to think of Father Grimaldi. Benedetto Castelli, a Benedictine priest, is considered the founder of hydraulics. He was a friend and pupil of Galileo and the teacher of two important scientific figures, Bonaventura Cavalieri and Evangelista Torricelli. Cavalieri, himself a priest, made important contributions to the development of integral calculus. You see on the slide a quote from Leibniz himself. Leibniz and Newton, as you know, were the people who discovered or invented calculus, uh, attesting to the importance of the work of Cavalieri and Torricelli. In the 18th century, there was Lazzaro Spallanzani, one of the leading biologists of that century. His contributions to biology were ver varied and numerous. He was the first to explain the process of digestion. He showed that fertilization in mammals occurred through the union of sperm and egg. He even did experiments trying to breed various animals. One of his less successful attempts was to breed cats and dogs. Uh, he, he studied echolocation in bats and the regeneration of limbs in lower animals. Among his most important work was a series of experiments disproving the theory of spontaneous generation. These experiments influenced the famous work of Louis Pasteur a century later. 
René Just Oui is the founder, considered the founder of crystallography. In the 19th century, there was Giuseppe Piazzi, who, among his many contributions, discovered the first asteroid or uh, minor planet, which he named Ceres. And I show, actually, uh, Ceres has now been upgraded. Pluto was downgraded from being a planet to a being so-called dwarf planet. Uh, Ceres has been upgraded. It is considered also a dwarf planet. Uh, so Giuseppe Piazzi, a theatine priest, uh, discovered it in 1801. There's a picture of Ceres taken by the Hubble Space Telescope and a picture taken by the, oh, it's a little squashed. It's supposed to be a sphere. Taken by the uh, Dawn spacecraft, which about a month ago started orbiting uh, Ceres. Uh, there was Pietro Angelo Secchi, a Jesuit who was considered one of the founders of modern astrophysics for pioneering the use of spectroscopy in studying the, st the sun and, and stars. In fact, he developed the first classification of stars uh, by their spectral properties, which is the basis of the present system of classifying stars. A beautiful symbol of the harmony of faith and science is the fact that Secchi did some of his groundbreaking research using an observatory built on top of the Church of Sant'Ignazio in Rome. It's not there anymore. There was Bernard Bolzano, a Czech priest who helped put modern mathematics on a more rigorous foundation. Anyone who has studied advanced math has heard of the Bolzano-Weierstrass theorem and the Bolzano function. Here's a quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy saying, that he is perhaps the greatest logician in the period between Leibniz and Frege. And then, of course, there's Gregor Mendel, who founded the science of genetics. In the 20th century, there was Julius Newland, a chemistry professor at the University of Notre Dame, who did work that led to the development of, the, of neoprene, the first synthetic rubber. And last but not least, Georges Lemaitre, the founder of the Big Bang Theory, the central idea in modern cosmology. That's the clerical gentleman standing with Albert Einstein. How many people know that the Big Bang Theory, that the originator of it, the primary originator of it was a Catholic priest? What a glorious record of achievement. Professor Lawrence Principe of Johns Hopkins University, who's both a chemist and a noted historian of science, has written, quote, the Catholic Church has been probably the largest single and longest term patron of science in history. The rest of my talk will deal with the third strand of the materialist critique. The notion that many of the greatest discoveries of modern science have undermined or debunked the traditional Christian and Jewish view of the universe, of human beings, and of our place in the universe. Get rid of, well, I'll leave, I'll leave Lemaitre up there. As things stood about 100 years ago, this view had some plausibility. But much has changed since then. There have been several major discoveries or developments, especially in physics, that seem more consonant with the Christian and Jewish conception of the universe and of man than with the materialists. I'd like to discuss five of them briefly. In each case, I'll mention earlier discoveries that had seemed to favor the materialist's view, and then the more recent discovery or development that points the other way. The first has to do with the structure of the cosmos. We've all heard how 
Copernicus overturned the religious picture of the cosmos by showing that human beings are not at the center of it, and how later discoveries demoted us even further by showing that the Earth is just a tiny speck lost in the vastness of space. Actually, however, the idea of the Earth as the center of the universe did not come from the Bible, but from ancient Greek science, specifically Aristotle and Ptolemy. Nor was the center a place of honor in Aristotle's cosmos, but the lowliest, and the farther from it things were, the more noble and exalted they were. There was one idea about cosmology, however, that did enter Western thought from biblical revelation. It was not about space and whether it had a center, it was about time and whether it had a beginning. The pagan thinkers of antiquity, including Aristotle, conceived of the universe as having had no beginning. Modern atheists have also tended to prefer this idea. And until about 100 years ago, almost every, almost every indication from science seemed to support it. Physicists discovered that the amount of energy never changes. It cannot be created or destroyed. Chemists found that the number of atoms never changes in chemical reactions. In Newtonian physics, time extended infinitely into past and future, just as space extended infinitely in all directions. Almost everything suggested that matter, energy, space, and time had always existed and always would. The idea of a beginning came to be seen as outdated religious mythology. The Nobel Prize winning chemist Svante Arrhenius said in 1911, quote, the opinion that something can come from nothing is at variance with the present day state of science according to which matter is immutable, unquote. And the Nobel Prize winning physicist Walter Nernst declared, quote, to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the very foundations of science. He meant the infinite duration of time into the past. But in 1916, Einstein proposed his theory of gravity called, the general, called general relativity, and everything changed. In the 1930s, and I'm sorry, in the 1920s, the Belgian theoretical physicist, Georges Lemaitre, who was also a Catholic priest, as we've seen, realized that the equations of Einstein's theory could describe a universe whose space was expanding. Combining this with the observations of astronomers that distant galaxies were receding from us, Lemaitre proposed what is now called the Big Bang Theory. It took a long while to gain acceptance, primarily for scientific reasons, but partly also because of philosophical prejudice against the idea of a beginning. But in time, the evidence grew overwhelming that the hypothesized Big Bang did occur about 14 billion years ago, in the standard Big Bang Theory, in the standard Big Bang Theory, everything began at that point, matter, space, and time itself. It is possible that something preceded the Big Bang and that it wasn't the absolute beginning of the universe, but only the beginning of some phase of its history. There are, however, and there are lots of interesting speculative models of that sort. There are, however, very strong theoretical reasons to think that the universe did have an absolute beginning a finite time ago, if not at the Big Bang, then at some earlier point. So science now strongly supports an idea that came from biblical revelation and was dismissed both by the pagans of antiquity and by modern materialists, and for a long time seemed 
contrary to science. <clears throat> the second development I'll speak about has to do with evidence of design in nature. Religious believers have always seen such evidence. The starry heavens, the forms of living things, and the other wonders of nature were seen as having been fashioned by the hand of God. Modern science seemed, however, to undercut this idea by showing that they were the result of mechanisms that depended upon a combination of impersonal laws and blind chance. Whereas Genesis spoke of God placing the sun and moon in the firmament, astrophysics has shown us that they condensed from swirling clouds of gas and dust under the attraction of gravitational forces. Darwin showed how the intricate structures of living things could arise from natural selection operating upon random genetic muta random mutations. When Napoleon asked the great mathematician and physicist Laplace why God was never mentioned in his treatise on celestial mechanics, Laplace famously replied that he, quote, had no need of that hypothesis. The laws of physics had displaced God. This was a new way of looking at the laws of physics. From ancient times, it had been argued, as we've seen, that the lawfulness of nature pointed to a lawgiver. But now it was argued that the laws of physics themselves, in and of themselves, constituted a sufficient explanation for the order of nature. And this does seem to make a certain amount of sense. If, we, if one thinks about the shapes or patterns that we see in tangible objects or collections of objects, such as crystals or seashells or sunflowers or the motions of heavenly bodies. Consider, for example, the solar system. It exhibits many striking mathematical patterns, some of which were discovered by Johannes Kepler. He found that each planet uh, follows an elliptical path around the sun with its speed varying in such a way that the line from planet to sun sweeps out equal areas and equal times. He also discovered a simple and elegant algebraic relation between the period of a planet's orbit and its distance from the sun. All of these and many other patterns in the solar system can be explained by the laws of Newtonian physics. Does that mean, however, that the laws of Newtonian physics explained the existence of cosmic order? No, quite the reverse. For how did Newtonian physics explain the order of the solar system? It did so by appealing to a deeper mathematical order that holds throughout the whole universe. It showed that Kepler's three laws of planetary motion follow from Newton's more fundamental laws of mechanics and gravity. And Newton's laws describe an order far grander and more impressive than the laws of Kepler. There was more order to explain after Newton than before. And where does the, grander, the greater order discovered by Newton come from? Newton's law of gravity comes from, the yet more fundament, from yet more fundamental laws, namely the equations of Einstein's theory of gravity. And lo and behold, the mathematical order described by Einstein's laws is even more splendid, beautiful, and profound than that found by Newton. And the process continues. It's believed that Einstein's laws, in turn, can be derived from yet more fundamental uh, laws that are more beautiful and profound still. Very likely, 
those, uh, the laws of so-called M-theory or superstring theory. As one goes deeper, the mathematical ideas one encounters become more sophisticated. Kepler's laws could be explained to a junior high school student in a, in a few minutes. Newton's laws that underlie them, you have to understand calculus to understand Newtonian physics. To understand Einstein's theory of gravity, you have to know differential geometry and the mathematics of, of curved, non-Minkowskian space-time, which most people don't learn until they get to graduate school. The mathematical depths of superstring theory are such that after 30, over 30 years of intensive study by many of the most brilliant mathematical physicists in the world, uh, they still do not fully understand the mathematical structure of superstring theory. This is what the progress of physics, especially in the 20th century, has shown with ever greater clarity. The deeper we probe into the hidden workings of the physical world, the richer, more intricate, and more magnificent the mathematical uh, structure we find. And we find this beautiful structure in the mathematical laws themselves. All of this has changed the context in which we think about design in nature. When the questions that scientists asked were simply about shapes and patterns seen in tangible things, however beautiful, it may have seemed out of place to speak of them as fashioned by the hand of God. They could be accounted for by the operation of the laws of physics. But now that the deepest laws of physics themselves have been found to form a magnificent mathematical edifice of great subtlety, harmony, and beauty, the question of a cosmic designer has returned with greater force than ever. In 1931, the great mathematician and physicist Hermann Weyl gave a lecture at Yale University in which he said the following, quote, many people, many people think that modern science is far removed from God. I find, on the contrary, that it is much more difficult for the knowing person to approach God from history, from the, uh, the spiritual side of the world, and from morals. For there we encounter the suffering and evil in the world, which it is difficult to bring into harmony with an all-merciful and almighty God. In this domain, we have evidently not yet succeeded in raising the veil with which our human nature covers the essence of things. But in our knowledge of physical nature, we have penetrated so far that we can obtain a vision of the flawless harmony which is in conformity with sublime reason. Minucius Felix spoke of the providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth. The deeper we have penetrated into the structure of the universe, the more order and law we have seen. So that the ancient argument for God from the order of nature has been strengthened, not weakened, by scientific progress. The third development I'll speak of has to do with whether there is purpose in nature. It's easy to regard natural things as having purposes. For example, the sun seems to exist to provide energy uh, that plants need to grow, and rain 
to provide the water. From this, it's a short step to ascribing such purposes to a plan existing in the mind of God. And the pre-modern science of Aristotle was based on teleology, the idea that natural processes and entities are directed toward ends or goals. Heavy objects fall in order to reach the center of the earth. Living things heal from injury in order to reach the goal of bodily health and wholeness. But this teleological approach to science was set aside by the scientific revolution, especially in physics, and replaced by a mechanistic approach. Events were no longer seen as drawn toward future goals, but as driven blindly along by past and present causes. Modern physics explains how the sun formed and generates energy without any reference to ends. In the perspective of modern physics, neither the sun nor its energy are for anything, such as supporting life on Earth. Rather, life on Earth takes advantage of the energy that happens to be there. Darwinian evolution has pushed this mode of explanation further. To put it simply, trees do not exist so that monkeys can climb them, but rather some creatures adapted to the presence of trees by evolving the ability to climb. But the idea of purpose in nature has staged a revival. And again, it is not so much at the level of tangible things and their structure, but at the level of the laws of physics themselves. Over the last 40 years or so, physicists have become increasingly aware that many features of the laws of physics seem arranged just so as to make life possible. These are sometimes called anthropic coincidences. One could give many examples. I'll just mention a few. If the world did not obey the principles of quantum mechanics, atoms and molecules would not be the stable building blocks out of which, with well-defined properties, out of which living things or complex structures could be built. If the down quark were lighter than the up quark instead of the other way around, then ordinary hydrogen, on which all life depends, would be radioactively unstable. If the so-called strong force, one of the four known forces in nature, the one that holds nuclei together, if the so-called strong force were even a small fraction weaker than it is, a crucial nucleus called deuterium could not exist. And this nuclear reactions, which power the sun and similar stars, would not take place, depriving the Earth of the energy needed for life. Moreover, the fusion reactions, the fusion processes that occur in stars, and which were required to form all the elements of the periodic table besides the hydrogen and the, some of the lightest ones, would not have been possible. We live in a universe with practically only helium and hydrogen, and you can't make living things out of that. We, we live in a universe that has three macroscopic space dimensions. There may be some other extra dimensions that are of subatomic in scale, but we have three macroscopic space dimensions. If the number of macroscopic dimensions of space were greater than three, gravity would act differently, and in such a way the planets could not orbit stars. They would either plunge into the star or they would fly off into space. If you had less than three space dimensions, other catastrophes happen. 
Other things happen that make it difficult to have light, complex organisms. Three, it seems to be a very special number of space dimensions to have if you want living things. One could go on and on giving examples of such anthropic coincidences. Now, the most obvious way to explain them is to say that whoever or whatever mind is behind the laws of physics conceived of them with the purpose that life should arise in the universe. Now, there's an alternative way of explaining the anthropic coincidences called the multiverse idea, which I haven't time to explain, though I'd be very happy to talk about it in the Q&A section after my talk. If the universe is a multiverse, it may, as it may well be, it would explain some, though not all, of the, it could explain some, but not all of the anthropic coincidences. But it wouldn't dispose of the evidence for purpose in the fundamental structure of nature's laws. Since a multiverse must itself have very special laws. Thus, one way or another, the laws of physics have to be special if you're going to have a universe with, with complex organic life in it. By the way, the very vast size of the universe, which some people see as a sign of human insignificance, is actually one of the things which makes life possible in our universe. The astrophysical and biological processes by which life arose required billions of years to unfold. And according to Einstein's theory of gravity, a universe which lasts for billions of years must attain a size of at least billions of light years across. A universe that never got larger than a human scale of distance, say thousands of miles across, would last only a small fraction of a second. The fourth development I'll discuss has to do with the issue of determinism and free will. For 300 years, all indications were that the mathematical laws of our universe are deterministic. That is, given the state of the universe at one time, the equations would determine its whole future development uniquely, as was famously stated by Laplace 200 years ago. This was a powerful objection to the idea of free will and greatly disturbed religious thinkers. And if anything seemed solidly supported by science 100 years ago, it was physical determinism. But then, to the astonishment of physicists, determinism was overthrown by quantum mechanics in the 1920s. For it turned out that a fundamental feature of quantum mechanics is that its equations do not, generally speaking, predict what will happen, but only the relative probabilities of various future outcomes. That has seriously weakened the physics objection to the possibility of free will. To quote Hermann Weyl in the same 1931 lecture, quote, we may say that there exists a world causally closed and determined by precise laws, but the new insight which modern quantum physics affords opens several ways of reconciling personal freedom with the laws of nature. It would be premature, however, for to propose a definite and complete solution of the problem. We must await the further development of science, perhaps for centuries, perhaps for thousands of years, before uh, we can design a true and detailed picture of the interwoven texture of matter, life, and soul. But the old classical determinism of Hobbes and Laplace 
need not oppress us longer, unquote. The fifth and last development I'll discuss, so I'm near, near the end, has to do with the question of whether mind, and, and particularly the human mind, is reducible to matter, as materialists claim. As biological processes have increasingly been understood in terms of chemistry and physics, and as neuroscience has shown how intimate the connection is between mental phenomena and events in the brain, many people have become convinced that mind is simply an emergent property of matter. This conviction has been strengthened by the increasing ability of computers to perform tasks that in humans, at any rate, require intelligence, such as playing chess or translating languages. So that a man is now seen, so that man is now seen by many as not having a soul, but just as a machine made of meat or a wet computer. However, two very profound 20th century discoveries have cast considerable doubt on the idea that the human mind is but the operation of a physical mechanism. These discoveries are quantum mechanics in physics and Gödel's theorem in mathematics. I can only discuss them very briefly here. Quantum mechanics, as traditionally understood, distinguishes between physical systems and conscious observers of those systems. The reason in rough terms is the following. Quantum mechanics, as I mentioned above, deals in probabilities at a very basic level. It's woven into the very fabric of quantum theory that it's dealing with probabilities. Probabilities have to do, at least probabilities of events, have to do with what someone knows or doesn't know. The more you know, the less you have to rely on probabilities. We know that Lincoln won the presidential election in what is 1864, but someone who didn't know that, living in 1863, would have to use probabilities. The one who knows or doesn't know the state of a physical system and learns about it through observations and measurements is traditionally called the observer in quantum mechanics. And to know requires mind and consciousness. So probabilities mean knowledge, knowledge means mind. That's how mind gets into the picture. Thus it has been argued, and I can't go through the logic and the, and the technical details, but it has been argued by some eminent physicists that quantum mechanics implies that mind and consciousness are as fundamental to the constitution of the world as matter is. Heisenberg himself said, for example, that the mathematics of quantum mechanics, quote, represents no longer the behavior of elementary particles, but rather our knowledge of their behavior, unquote. And Sir Rudolf Peierls, a leading 20th century physicist, said, quote, the quantum mechanical description is in terms of knowledge, and knowledge requires somebody who knows. And he emphasized somebody, not something. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Eugene Wigner commented that, Quote, the very study of the physical world led to the conclusion that the content of the consciousness is an ultimate reality, unquote. Moreover, an argument that goes back to the great mathematician John von Neumann says that the mind of the observer in quantum mechanics, the mind of the observer is not completely describable by physics within the framework of quantum mechanics. Here is Pyrrhus again. 
Quote, the premise that you can describe in terms of physics the whole function of a human being, including its knowledge and consciousness, is untenable. That's why Wigner stated that materialism is not, quote, logically consistent with present quantum mechanics, unquote. Gödel's theorem was an epoch-making discovery in mathematical logic proved in 1931 by Kurt Gödel, one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century. What he showed was that there's more to doing mathematics and to discovering mathematical truth than merely mechanically following rules, the way a computer does, for instance. From this, some have argued that the human mind, when thinking mathematically, is not just operating like a machine, like an algorithm. Gödel himself rejected the materialist view of, of the human mind, calling it, quote, a prejudice of our time. The philosopher John R. Lucas of Oxford University wrote in 1961, quote, Gödel's theorem seems to me to prove that mechanism is false, that is, that human minds cannot be explained as machines. So also has it seemed to many other people. Almost every mathematical logician I have put the matter to has confessed to similar thoughts, unquote. Lucas developed a careful argument for this conclusion. Now, since the mid-1980s, this Gödelian argument has been championed and further refined by the eminent mathematician Sir Roger Penrose, also of Oxford University. A point that Lucas and Penrose both emphasize is that the human mind is capable of doing something that mere computing machines cannot, namely understanding concepts and grasping meaning. It would, I, it would take a long time to explain this Gödelian argument, um, but we can talk about it in private. I should make clear that most scientists and most logicians nowadays uh, would be skeptical of the anti-materialist arguments based on quantum mechanics or Gödel's theorem. Uh, nevertheless, these arguments have been advanced and defended by several of the most brilliant scientific and mathematical minds of the 20th century. One thing, therefore, is certain. Materialism is definitely not a conclusion to which modern science necessarily leads. We see then that the discoveries of the 20th century have shown us a world that looks more like the world of Christian faith than did the science of 100 years ago. We find that the universe probably did have a beginning after all. We find that the laws of nature have a richness and profundity of mathematical structure that bespeak design, that suggest a mind at work. We find in those laws many features that suggest that the universe has a purpose, which is to give rise to life. We find that the determinism that seemed to refute the possibility of free will has been overthrown. And we find that some of the deepest discoveries in physics and mathematics suggest that there is more to the human mind than physics or mathematics can describe. I've covered quite a lot of ground. I hope I've shown that Christianity and the Catholic Church specifically have been friends of modern science and have in turn nothing to fear from modern science. <laughs>
The real antagonist of religion is not science itself, but scientific materialism, a reductive philosophy that comes from a blinkered view of reality and a blinkered view of science itself. Thank you.